Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Anthony Corsaro, an entrepreneur, investor, and regenerative agriculture evangelist whose mission is to help heal our people and planet through ventures that inspire the production and consumption of healthy, nutrient-dense foods. This is a powerful conversation, including Anthony's personal, intense health journey and how he walks the walk when it comes to food as medicine. Let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm excited to be joined by Anthony Corsaro with Regen Brands, Outlaw Ventures, and numerous other things. But I'm going to give <laughs> him the opportunity to tell his story and, and introduce himself in that manner. But welcome, Anthony. I'm glad you could be here today. Thanks, Monty. Appreciate you having me, man. Excited to be here. So so this guy here is a little, little nervous because uh, Anthony... <laughs> as a podcast himself so uh this is this is going to be i hope i can keep up to his standards uh during, during our time together so i uh I, i'm i'm finding some nerves back as well you know your legend precedes yourself and uh, i'm just excited to be here and grateful for the opportunity well people say i cast a big shadow but uh, that isn't <laughs> uh, it's my body size more than <laughs> Well, Anthony, tell us your story and, and um, how you got started and, and how that all wove into what you're doing now to uh, do everything possible yeah. to bring regenerative agriculture forward. I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear it, and I'm sure everyone else would, too. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's kind of a combination of family history and, and personal journey, right? So my grandfather was a second-generation Italian-American orphan uh, in the Midwest in Indianapolis, Indiana. And he started hustling produce because that was one of the few economic opportunities that he had. And basically, over many years, my father and uncles and cousins turned that business into a regional produce distribution powerhouse in the Midwest. Um, I grew up in that business. I worked every single job you can imagine out in the warehouse from sanitation to selector to receiver to whatever. Um, but, you know, I kind of swore it off. I went off to play college football. Uh, I had a couple of jobs right out of school. And then I rejoined the business after we sold it to private equity in 2017. And I was part of the family management team that basically um, were the custodians of the next generation of the business and helped kind of continue the, the next wave of growth. Uh, had a lot of success, but I stepped away at the end of 2020 because I have an autoimmune disease. And through you know a decade plus long journey with the disease, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about our healthcare system. I learned a lot about our food and agricultural system. And really I became a huge fan of food as medicine and I became a huge fan of regenerative agriculture. So, you know, my my passion in the space really is the culmination of this hundred year family legacy in food and food systems and this intense uh, health journey where, you know, food as medicine and healing myself through food was a big piece of it. That's interesting. And we have a mutual story. My wife, uh, autoimmune disease uh, is mm. part of the reason why we began such a hard look into how we're farming and regenerative ag practices and why we do our uh, grass-fed and pastured poultry business uh, mm -hmm. direct to consumer today. So interesting commonality there. We'll dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So I find that interesting. Uh, so you said your dad or your granddad, Italian orphan, you said? 
my granddad. 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 Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, interesting how many um, people of Italian descent got into produce distribution around that time. I mean, and if you look mm-hmm. at all the powerhouses today in California, mostly are of Italian descent. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. What? Why that connection? It it uh, it's fascinating, but uh, um, that had to be quite a legacy and talking about your your family selling that to a venture capital firm in, in 2017 what was that like for your family to go through that yeah there's uh it's interesting i think you know as it, exiting the private equity was the best way for my dad and my uncles and the 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 owners to really capture the value that they had created over the many many years um it was the best way to take care of the next generation and let them work in the business but not have the financial stress of you know, not having some sort of liquidity event or exit event. Um, and, you know, it was it was interesting. I certainly learned a lot about the capital markets and investing, and that kind of helped set me on the path that I'm on now trying to inject capital into the food system. So I just greatly appreciate the opportunity. And, um, you know, the, the legacy piece is interesting, right? Because I felt compelled to be a part of the business, and I still... I could walk, I could walk into that company today and do some of those jobs at a very, very high level, having not worked there since late 2020, just because it, it's in my blood. Um, but it was hard to leave. It was really hard to leave. And it was the right thing to do for me to leave. But that that made it tough. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. And and probably you'd reached a point where, you know, everything gets bigger all the time, right? It's just mm-hmm. the way of business. And, and you look at um, hey, I got a bird in the hand here with the venture capital, and they've got the probably the equity behind them that to help propel that business to the next level, right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. Uh, if the family had chosen to do that, they could wind up with a big, you know, risk it all and wind up with nothing. And uh, mm-hmm. was that kind of the the balancing act that was was going on there? Yeah, for sure. And you know what, private equity is really good at is managing debt and managing how the money flows and the hardcore produce operators that ran that business for a long time were good at doing that at the scale of their business. But, you know, that entity, we were basically the platform acquisition for a roll up in that space that now is 10 plus entities. And to manage that level of complexity and integration and debt capital to acquire those businesses, you know, it's not a, it's not a skill set that you typically have in-house at a business. Um, So I don't know if when we sold, we had the full scope. Uh, we felt like we had good partners coming on board that wanted to grow, that were going to let us run the business and let us be the experts in the space and not try and dictate that to us, which they certainly have been. Um, but yeah, it's it's different skill sets, right? And that's the beautiful thing about business in all facets is it's bringing people and entities together that are complementary that can make good things happen. And I think it's important to note in the capital world, uh, there's a lot of uh, we're, we're familiar with the angel investing startup type of thing, thanks to popular mm-hmm. TV shows and, and that kind of thing today. But there is a real big interest in helping uh, family businesses or generational businesses uh, have an exit plan, which they mm-hmm. haven't. You know, so the capitalist has an opportunity for a, a steady, you know, return on money. But then, like you said, in this case, it sounds like they were putting multiple businesses together to create a vertically integrated. Um, uh, ecosystem within their different businesses that each one of your 10 would not have been able to do alone. Correct. Exactly. And okay, I'm laying that foundation because that's going to come in here later. I'm, I'm assuming I, I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm reading between the lines here. <laughs> anyway, so talk to us in, um, the autoimmune disease in 2020, uh, mm-hmm. 
share with us what you're comfortable sharing there. I, I and yeah, and how you determine that food has an impact on that. Yeah, super comfortable sharing all of it, honestly. And I think um, every time I do, I get at least one person that reach out that says, I'm struggling with something similar. I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and can you help? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to share it. So I have a disease called hydronitis superativa. It's a little bit of a mouthful. Uh, you learned how to spell that. I mean, that, that <laughs> I was, put it into hard. Google every time, Monty, and then I just copy and paste it. Auto-correct. So I never have to learn how to spell it. You just hope that autocorrect works. <laughs> Normally it doesn't, you know? Um, okay say that again slowly (laughs) yeah hydronitis superativa it's called hs for short that's easier yes huh um and it's a skin related condition and for lack of a better way to explain it you know you basically get large acne boils zits lesions um that are painful uncomfortable not good looking and in places you don't want to get them i'll leave it at that um (laughs) and basically I started getting them around 14 um, in high school and, you know, it, it bothered me and it was part of my life, but I had so much going on in high school and college between, you know, uh, social life and sports and uh, academics that it didn't take up a large part of my time. But I think as I entered adulthood, I just had a really strong intuitive feeling like, Hey, this is not natural. This is not right. I, this shouldn't be happening. How do I fix this? Um, And I explored, every single hardcore Western medical dermatologist kind of route. I even went to the the guru guy outside of Detroit. That's the leading dermatologist and, you know, kind of got a doomsday uh, diagnosis. He basically just said, Hey, you're kind of phase two out of three. There's nothing you can do this whole, like cleaning up your diet things, like not going to help you, but like, good luck. And kind of just patted me on the butt and sent me out the door. Um, but thankfully, you know, I found uh, functional medicine doctors and naturopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. And I found an awesome naturopath outside of Denver um, named Dr. Ashley Bisco at Attune Functional Medicine. And um, she changed my life. And she had done the work, her and her partner, and really invested in learning about HS and specifically helping people with HS. And, you know, there were three, there were three big components I had to, I had to overcome. One was the food piece. One was a stress piece. And then the the other, the big unlock was a mold piece. I had a really, really bad mold toxicity issue where I'd had some mold exposure. I needed to remove myself from the exposure and then detox the mold. And so while I'm still very disciplined about diet, exercise, stress, et cetera, uh, and it has a huge part in it, you know, that, that mold piece was a huge unlock to just my overall kind of healing and vitality. Very, very interesting. So uh, same similar story with my wife where we were working with a naturopath there in Fresno and she had been on uh, my wife had seen her and such and actually mm-hmm. watched her on uh, the local tv talk about this blood test that can identify foods that mm-hmm. you're intolerant to mm-hmm. and she went to her naturopath said hey why haven't you done this with me well, <laughs> okay so um, but I think the biggest thing anybody listening to this can take away, and I bet you'll vouch for this, is that you have you are responsible for your health, and you have mm-hmm. to take charge of that. And and she mm-hmm. just searched everything, everywhere, and um, mm-hmm. with the premise of God didn't design my body to uh, destroy itself internally, so something was happening to make that happen. So good for you, and so that's been life changing, and and yeah. the food side of that has definitely piqued your interest in regenerative. Why? Yeah. I mean, I just, the more that I learn about it, the more impassioned I become and the more invigorated and inspired I become. And it was just one of those things that it's, it's totally caught me and it's captivated my attention and curiosity. And, um, 
you know, hasn't been easy at, at all times learning and working in the space. I think the space is still really underfunded and really nascent. And, you know, we have a lot of problems to solve like, like anyone does. Um, but it's been so fulfilling and so worthwhile. And I've just followed that, you know, I've just kind of got up every day and done my work. And when I've looked at all those bricks stacked up, it looks pretty good. So I feel good about it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, well, tell us a little bit about, um, uh, the efforts that you have going on right now. Um, I'll just let you take it away in the different, um, different ventures and, and branding yeah. and all that, that you have going on. Share, share with us what you got going on. Yeah. The question I get on most intro zoom calls is like, well, I looked at your LinkedIn. It looks like there's a lot of things. Can you explain, you know, what exactly is, is going on here? Um, you know, and the journey is I really dedicated myself to the space full time in January of 21. So it's almost been, you know, three, three, four years of, of working in, in the space. And I've done some entrepreneurial stuff. I've had a W2 role in the space and I've also done private investing that whole time. Right. And, you know, to spare the full story and all the details, you know, a lot of my work has revolved around regenerative food systems investment. So investing across the entire supply chain, the organization I had the W2 rollout was called RFSI or regenerative food systems investment, um, which is the leading news and events, you know, provider of investing content in the space. Um, and really, Monty, what I saw was uh, that we as a movement have something I call upstream disease. And this might be a little contentious. I'm sure there'll be some farmers that listen to this episode that, that maybe have some choice words for me. But, you know, yes, we are trying to change the agricultural practices at the farm gate. But I think sometimes we try to just myopically solve those problems only by changing the farm gate when there's infrastructure and brands and all these other things that are in the whole supply chain that help dictate, you know, the outcomes at the farm gate. And so what I saw was a real dearth of education, understanding, financing, attention, content, all of the above for what I would call the downstream supply chain in the region ag conversion conversation, right? So we're spending a lot of time talking about soil carbon. We're spending a ton of time talking about the farmers and what they need and production and debt and all those things are awesome. And we need to spend twice as much time and advice and invest 10 times the amount of money, but we are not spending nearly enough time on infrastructure and brands. And, you know, I had built up a portfolio of 22 private angel slash family office investments. Um, and I just saw an opportunity to lend my skill set to a group of people in terms of the CPG founders and operators that I thought were under-resourced, misunderstood, and needed, you know, a champion. And so the the media work with the Regen Brands media entity, the podcast, the newsletter, the blog, et cetera, is really to be a B2B source of content for food system stakeholders, right? To educate them on what is going on in the world of regenerative CPG. Outlaw Ventures is a source of capital and expertise and relationships to help those, those folks grow their businesses and impact. And then the Regen Coalition is the third entity. And that is right now an LLC, but it will become a 501c6 trade association. And my partner in crime on the podcast, Kyle Krull, he started the Regen Coalition really as a grassroots movement to bring brands together to co-promote, cross-pollinate customers, do end caps, execute at retail together. Um, but the bottleneck that we're really trying to solve with the Regen Coalition right now is, you know, there's no one out there doing consumer-facing work that's driving increased awareness and increased demand of products, right? You have 
farmer's footprint and kiss the ground. They're doing awesome work at a high level about the awareness of regenerative agriculture and why it's important. But what we need to do is channel that into the mom in Naperville, Illinois, shopping for her groceries, actually buying regenerative products. Very good. And more than just a sticker, right? And yeah, take, taking yeah. and putting another sticker because uh, some of the uh, packaging really needs to be bigger in, in order to fit all of the uh, certifications on it anymore, uh, where yeah. uh, I really think, so some of our research that, that we did when we were looking in our direct consumer business was we, we found out, and this was a long time ago, and I'm sure that it's, it's gotten worse, but only 52% of moms purchasing mm. groceries uh, mm. believe the labels. Mm. And that's a huge problem, right? So rather than just another sticker, you're looking at what if we create that brand? Um, mm. and, and then that mm. brand stands for the value proposition we're delivering. Is that where you see this more going? Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities, right? And whether it's Grateful Grace, what you're doing, and it's really a, a pure direct-to-consumer play, or it's a brand that's nationally in retailers, like a force of nature meets, mm -hmm. there's different ways to, to promote and make people aware of regenerative agriculture and drive purchase, right? Um, but the certification landscape is interesting. We talk about it a lot on our podcast. I salute the work of all the certifying bodies and really what they're trying to accomplish, um, I think there's six that have a real shot of getting mainstream adoption. Um, and I actually have a blog post coming out about that pretty soon. Um, but at the end of the day, the certifier, the certifying bodies are not marketers. And so it's amazing that they're providing the service to the brand and to the farmer to certify the land and to certify the product. But ultimately, if the consumer isn't aware it exists or doesn't know what it means, we haven't done the full job. And so that, I think, is the gap that we see the Regen Coalition playing. Very interesting. So, yeah, you know, one of the reasons, and I just had this discussion with another farmer before we, we sat down here, is, mm -hmm. you know, we are in a micro niche in that direct mm -hmm. consumer. And mm -hmm. the only thing that's really limiting us from going bigger in integrating livestock on the land or, or having, you know, more, um, you know, heritage grains, whatever it might be that we mm -hmm. can produce is just simply what we can sell. Because mm -hmm. there's, there's no outlet that allows us to get the value back to the farm that we need other than doing it all ourselves going to direct. Well, mm -hmm. if a million of us are doing that independently. Mm -hmm. The economics of scale of the distribution, the processing, mm -hmm. all the things that need to happen to get that to a consumable item for, you know, a, a family, mm -hmm. extraordinarily inefficient. You know, the big food companies have got this nailed. So yeah. Um, you know, we, we have to be somewhere in between and, and that really is the gap you're looking to, to solve the problem you're looking to solve. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I spend the majority of my time focused on the emerging brands. I would call those like sub $50 million in revenue. So not the PepsiCo's and the Coca-Cola's and the general mills of the world. Obviously I know exactly what's going on with those folks and follow that space. Cause that's, that's in the regen brands landscape. And I salute the work that they're doing. I mean, some more so than others. And it's going to have amazing impact on large swaths of acreage. But to me, the most dynamic solutions are these emerging brands that have regen built into their core, that have much more what I would call high integrity regenerative supply chains. And if we can grow them, right, if we can scale those businesses and those supply chains while maintaining that level of integrity, that is the food system that I think a lot more people want to support and want to have. 
The Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture. Along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome, we provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. That's a great point. So let's break that down a little bit. Um, let's say a farm that's going direct to consumer now, they kind of limit out based on their sales ability. And uh, for every dollar, right, they they have roughly, let's say, 70, 75 percent, 70, 75 cents of, of cost in there. Mm-hmm. But but that 25 cents, you know, is being spread over what would in a traditional or not traditional, but the current modern uh, mm-hmm. supply chain that 25 cents is, would be spread over the farmer, the processor, the logistics, the distributor, you know, uh, the store, all those things, which there's far more than 25 cents of margin in yeah. a, in a standard food dollar. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, that isn't going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. so how, how do you, how do you create this, um, uh, consumers willing to pay more, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the right thing, but how do you help get those costs out of that system to make more margin for everybody involved in the in the value chain? Yeah, you got to make the supply chain simpler, right? So you got to make it more direct relationships with the farmers and cut out as many middlemen as possible. And I think it's a lazy argument to always say middlemen are bad. I come from a middleman business and I can tell you that the margin that we make uh, as a produce distributor, we earn every penny of it. Right. So I don't want to make that claim, but I do think in certain commodities, we've gotten a little out of control. Uh, I don't see produce as one of those, but some of the more ingredient commodities like a cacao for chocolate or something like that, you know, we've gotten kind of crazy with the amount of hands it touches before it gets to the end consumer. Um, I really like the aggregator, the aggregator model, and I see a lot of opportunity for regional partnerships or integration of companies or collaboration, whatever you want to call it. So I'll just give you an example, right? Like Jamie at Hickory Nut Gap on the livestock on the livestock side, you know, he aggregates from, I don't know, however many farmers, I want to say it's more than hundred, maybe 200 plus. And a big, a big issue, Bonnie, that you understand from the livestock world is, is whole carcass utilization, right? Like I got to make money on that whole cow and that whole animal. And so if the farmer that if all the farmers that Jamie sources from were just selling direct to consumer, it might be really hard to sell all their grounds, right? They could sell the ribeyes and and the, all the steak cuts really easily, but they might have a bunch of grounds left over. And so what Jamie can do as an aggregator is he can go to somebody like Applegate and he can put that meat into the do good dog, right? And he can create a market that hopefully is higher margin, higher throughput, more efficient for all those regenerative land stewards <clears throat> that are producing regenerative livestock and. I think we need to do that 1000x, right? That's just one small example and I could give you others. Um, but systems like that to me are a beautiful thing that we need to try to replicate regionally and across the country. Now, let me ask you this, and this is a tough mm-hmm. question here, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> would you agree that regenerative farming is really rethinking how farming is done? For for non-first generation farmers, absolutely. Okay, a first generation farmer, they could just start that way and be like, this Clean is slate. farming's done, right? Right, okay. right, right. Right. So it's really rethinking how farming in total and, and mm-hmm. with regardless of the farmer is done. Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, if we're rethinking the food supply chain, 
Uh, the independent, the buy sell mantra that we have now mm -hmm. uh, will eventually create a, another version of commoditized value add. Mm -hmm. I mean, organic started, in my opinion, the way really regenerative is thought of as now. Okay. Mm -hmm. And organic devolved into you can only use these certain inputs and, you know, check the boxes of the, of the yeah. certifiers and yep, there it is stamped for organic. And then we sell it through the same, you know, distribution network and everything else, just different brand name with some labels on it. Mm -hmm. How do we, um, we didn't really rethink that, did we? No, if we're rethinking the supply chain. Yeah. If the dollars, if it's a pure, if there's not a, I contend there needs to be a profit sharing motive on the supply mm. chain back to mm -hmm. the farmer to where everybody rewards, not just the, the, all of the in-between mm -hmm. trying to buy it from the farmer as cheap as possible, which has mm -hmm. been the commodity driven route for mm -hmm. decades. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I, um, how can that happen? Are you adamantly opposed to that? Let's have a discussion around how that, pro what the profit motives are in that supply chain and should that be different or rethought somehow? Yeah, I think absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you there. Um, but I'd add the asterisk of we have to deal in the realities of today, right? So like, how do you, how do you help these companies survive and thrive while also trying to build some more of those innovative models that maybe the rest of the world isn't ready for yet? Like in my world of better for you, premium CPG, like the model is you go into UNFI and then you go into Whole Foods or you go into Kehi and then you go into Sprouts. And that is the big break of national distribution for all these young brands. And so, you know, there's other ways to skin that cat, but it's really hard to not do that, right? If you have an organic, natural, regenerative, whatever, premium CPG product. So I agree. Um, and I think there's various entities that are taking various different approaches. And what I actually see is not a lack of innovative thought but I see a lack of resources going to the innovators to actually iterate and do the work, um, you know, which is why I'm so passionate about the investing pieces. Um, to me, there's still not enough capital out there for all the innovative farmers that want to do regen. But I would I would contend that there's even less for all the people that want to build markets for those farmers. And that is the issue that I think I'm, I'm trying to solve. Okay, so let's let's just kind of break it down, and I'm I'm going to throw off some examples here of of yeah. ones that I think are in, in very unique, um, uh, different from each other uh, distribution models. Yeah. So, white oak pastures, yeah, you know, large regenerative direct to consumer, grassroots farmers cooperative, mm -hmm. so consolidated farmers with their own processing going direct, butcher box, venture mm -hmm. capital funded buying it from certified mm -hmm. providers, but then that's it. You know, then you've got, uh, on the other hand, um, shoot, there was another example I was going to think of, but name those examples and what you think the pluses and minuses are within this space to get, uh, make regen the, the, the number one food choice. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's like the whole, uh, practices versus outcomes based for what is regenerative. It's the same thing applied to the business models, which is if the outcome is the farmer's getting more of the food dollar, then you're doing something right. And so, I think there's better and worse ways to do that. But ultimately, I think when I'm when I'm evaluating business for investment, right, part of do they have a regenerative air quotes supply chain is are they working in with like are they working with the farmers and directing more of the food dollar back to the farmers than a conventional business? Like that is a piece of the of the requirement to me. Um, and 
you know, I know, I know the least about ButcherBox business model of the three that you mentioned. Um, but I bet that they're also at least still putting more food dollar back to the farmer than than the the conventional supply chain. But I I bet the other two you mentioned are doing much more of that. Um, so to me, that would be the main outcome metric to track versus getting too in the weeds on the how-to, even though I do think we, we could do that as well. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to say those are kind of, you know, three that popped in my head that are that are getting yeah. up. So that's a direct consumer, right? Which is different yeah. than the, you know, through the traditional grocery store model. Um, persistence of grocery store model. Uh, a lot of grocery stores are are struggling. And mm -hmm. uh, just was on the phone with a um, executive vice president of a large Midwest grocery store yesterday mm -hmm. and mentioning the problem with the younger audience, uh, mm -hmm. getting them to come to a grocery store, getting them to purchase uh, anything that they have to cook, not knowing mm -hmm. how to cook. Um, how is that dynamic going to enter into the uh, regenerative space? And uh, what do you see there as far as um, to shorten up the question between generational differences and brick and mortar and its mm -hmm. persistence in the future? Yeah, um, I think there's going to be a lot of disruption. There already is a lot of disruption. Um, you know, I think what the uh, grocery e-commerce boom and bust of the venture cycle showed us is that a lot of the parts of the food system are not venture backable, right? It's 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 not they're financeable and they're investable and you can make great return on them, but they necessarily can't always fit into the return expectation or the time horizon of of true venture market rate returns. Um, in terms of grocery operators, you know, when I was at Indianapolis Fruit, when I left, we were servicing twenty five hundred retail doors in twenty states. So I know a little bit about about the the independent retailer at least, um, and. The biggest mistake that I saw people make as a service provider to those folks was they tried to be the same as the big box stores, right? So in grocery, there's, you know, there's only two or three things that you can really, you know, do price, quality, and, and service, right? And you're never going to beat Kroger and Walmart and Aldi and Dollar General on price. So you better, you damn well better beat them on quality and service. And I think that the independent grocer a lot of times makes mistakes of trying to win on price. You need to compete on price because you are competing with those customers. And if you're way out of whack, your customer's going to notice and not give you their business. So I get that. You got to be competitive, right? But like they better walk into your department and you better have the friendliest staff and you better have the cleanest department and you better have the best quality product that's above those competitors. And I still think, you know, people people want to experience going to the grocery store like e-commerce is booming online groceries booming pickup is booming but the vast majority of people still grocery shop at the grocery store and i don't see that changing for the next at least decade or two um especially i think the foodies and the people that care about what they eat that we are targeting in the regen space so you know I think brands need to set them up set themselves up to one be omni-channel right so you have to have an omni-channel approach you have to have a brand that's able to execute both at retail, but through e-commerce, whether that be your own channel or others. Um, and then I think retailers just need to be different. You know, how many, how many people have we been going to their grocery stores and it looks the same as it does did when I was 10 or five years old, you know, that was, that was over a decade ago. Like you can't sit on your heels here in any, in any part of business or life. So, you know, my, my, 
my overall gusto for just innovation and, and trialing and experimenting is, is strong for that group of people and also just anyone, right, in business. So who is the buyer for regenerative brands? You mentioned foodie uh, mm. and in not necessarily for, for regenerative food. Mm. Um, who is the buyer and why are they buying? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it depends on the, the brand and the commodity, right? I think that looks different for coffee versus ice cream versus grass-fed, grass-finished ribeyes, right? Um, but the majority of grocery purchases happen by a woman, usually the mother of the household. So you're looking at, you know, millennial plus moms, millennial boomer moms, right? That's still the, the, the person making the majority of the grocery purchases. Um, and, you know, there's, there's different, there's different triggers that are going to cause that person to change the way that they buy things. And I think the way that we talk about it a lot and what I've learned a lot about is, you have to still be really great at the at the core fundamentals. It's got to taste great. It's got to be within range from a price perspective and not totally like shoo people away, right? And it's got to deliver some sort of health and wellness benefit that they understand that they're getting for, for that product. And it's got to meet whatever level of convenience that product is supposed to meet, right? So like a steak has a different convenience threshold than coffee, but it's got to hit those four table setters, whether it's regenerative or not, because that's the world that we live in. And then from a regenerative standpoint, it's really about tying some of those key purchasing drivers to regen on the back end. So, hey, this is more nutrient dense, right? And we're selling you the health and wellness health and wellness benefit of it's going to make you skinnier. It's going to help you focus. It's going to make you sleep better, whatever. But then explaining on the back end, it's because it was grown regeneratively or produced regeneratively. All right. So you just set up a great thing here. Okay. <laughs> four, four things people are looking for. Let's give... Let's give a score, okay? Let's let's grade the regenerative space now, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, as you think across the entire landscape, and there's there's going to be, you know, just like every class, you have your A students and you have your, mm, mm -hmm. you should have been held back students, okay? So, uh, <laughs> tastes great. Um, I'm going to give a grade now. Realize I'm biased. Uh, most of my yeah. is going to come from the meat perspective. You're going to have more of the produce perspective, but I'm also aware of the produce perspective. So in yeah. addition to taste grade, I think when it comes to produce also has to be an appearance portion of it because it's, For it's sure. high taste when they, when they purchase it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say in, in the meat side, I'd, I'd give us a strong C minus on that uh, mm. or, or worse. And I'd say on the produce side, probably a B minus because of appearance. I don't think you have the, the greenness, you have the bug issues, you don't have evenness of size, but the taste great on, on the meat side, it's lean. People are not used to it. It typically has a gamey flavor. It's got a yellow fat. That's weird. I'm not mm -hmm. used to that. Um, and and there, there's just a taste profile that people aren't used to. They're, they've become used to blah, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you, <laughs> how would you grade that, the meat and the produce sector? And may, maybe, you're, uh. maybe you're a little easier grader. I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down. I'm C minus and B minus. Yeah, I, I might go B minus on taste. Um, and appearance is really hard because <clears throat> that's so different from a steak versus an apple versus a branded package product, right? right? What I think that piece is less about, it's less about a grade and it's more about you have to pass a, a certain threshold to meet the consumer, you know, demands, right? To get a, to get a green light for, for them to pick it up and put it in their cart. So they're going to grade on a curve. You're saying in the taste department by default. I'm saying more so in appearance, more so in appearance than taste. Okay. okay. Very yeah. good. Interesting. We, yeah. And if it's a box product, you can make a box look pretty. That's, that's not yeah. an issue. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So you're see, 
students, um, you definitely want to be working with Anthony. He he grades. He's <laughs> a little nicer teacher. You had those teachers you knew, and you always wish that you'd get the one versus I'm that other guy. Okay. So in the price range, okay, today yeah. and most of the sphere that I'm interested, no, we're not. It's ridiculous. We're a D. You know? I'd give us a D. I, I yeah, I mean, yeah. depends on what it is. Re regenerative grass-fed beef, we're 150, 175% of conventional, depending on mm -hmm. market fluctuations. Pasture-raised pork, 3X. You know, mm -hmm. Pasture-raised chicken, 5X, except for, you know, we got that crazy down there with pasture bird that's making it more affordable. Mm -hmm. So fantastic mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, D and that, I I'm I'm with you there. I, I wish it could the be affordable. Context is important though, right? Like we got to get some of the subsidies and some of the free money on our side. Like it's, we're up, we're such a uphill battle there. Um, and, you know, I don't know, like, I don't claim to be an expert there and it's not my role to be an expert there, but I know damn well, like at a high level, like we're just at a really adverse playing field one and two, you know, my theory of change on the packaged food side is just, these are going to be premium price products. And that's how we're going to have to build this market at the onset. Do we have to eventually solve for accessibility and price? Yes, but there is plenty of proof of concept to show that there's enough people that will pay that premium for us to build some really, really nice brands that can do the trailblazing work that build that more accessible ecosystem long-term. Great point. And as far as subsidies go, I'm, I'm with you there because essentially that consumer has already paid mm -hmm. for a portion of that product prior to walking into the grocery store. So they've mm -hmm. already paid for the conventional product uh, through taxation and the farm bill and, and other subsidies and such. And they've also paid for it in the environmental externalized costs of conventional exactly. agriculture. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, don't hate. I'm the guy that's going to get the hate mail now, not you, Anthony. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's, that's a key point. Uh, a person choosing regen today is paying for it twice. They're paying for the right. conventional subsidization right. and they're paying a hundred percent of the costs of raising a regen product. There's no, there should be true regen should be no externalized cost to the environment. Mm-hmm. All right, health and wellness. Now, here we go. We're going to finally get some good grades. And, and I would say yeah. uh, in, in the uh, regenerative produce space, I'm, I'm going to definitely give us an A minus, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the, in the meat space, uh, I'm going to give us a, uh, I'm going to give us, believe it or not, a B plus because there's a wide range in how they're managed and such. And in the mm -hmm. processed space, I'm sorry, I hate processed food. It still gets an F because processed food's bad for you. So there you go. I'm, I'm a bad teacher. I can say that. You can't say that, Anthony, because that's your yeah. course. But go ahead. Where, yeah. How do you grade on those? Well, I would definitely push back on the processed food comment. I think I it's, all the, junk. <laughs> it's, it, it's the type of, of item and it's what's in it, right, to me. Like I'm all for whole food ingredients, minimally processed ingredients that you can recognize. Me too. Um, and... I'd, I'd, I'd give us a more like generalized grade. Right. Um, and I, I'd give us a B plus or an A minus right across. Like we are delivering that where I'd give us an F actually on health and wellness is we are not marketing it well enough to the consumer. That's right. It. So I, I'll speak to the bias I have, which is on the brand side, which is we are in a lot of brands leading with the regenerative story that such a small part of the consumer base cares about less than five, less than 3% wants to solve climate change, wants to help the farmer, wants to do all those things. I wish more did care. I'm not saying that's not awesome. It is, but for us to really drive these businesses revenue, like we have to lead with a what's in it for me takeaway for the consumer. It tastes awesome. It looks awesome. It's good for you. Like that's it. And so 
well, and I you think can get our, it easily. Right. Yeah. Well, while I think our health and wellness benefits have an awesome grade, our marketing of them, I don't think has a good grade. Good point. And in all fairness, I think traditional food gets a DNF in the health and wellness area. Okay. So yeah. just as a comparison, yeah. what I was saying on the A minus B plus is that I think we still have room for improvement in, yeah, in for the sure. health and wellness. So great points. This, uh, this is kind of a fun discussion here. Uh, we've, you know, both of us are secretly wanting to be professors and, and grade people. <laughs> we've, we've been hammered through our lives. So let's go to the convenience level. Uh, mm -hmm. Convenience level for regen now. Uh, you have to, it's, um, I would say it's, it's a little easier than being a deer hunter. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really? If you're, if you're looking to have a 100% regenerative food diet, mm -hmm. good luck. You better be good at growing it. Right. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to access. Is that, is that a fair statement? I mean, you can go to maybe a natural grocers and you still have to, you know, hunt around in there yeah. uh, or whole foods. You still have to hunt in there because that's largely organic driven, which is not regenerative. Uh, so convenience level, I think that's where we probably fail the most. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Or what? what's I'm, your grades? What's your grade? Yeah. Once again, so, so much nuance across product type, right? Oh, but absolutely. I'd give us a D plus across the board. Um, and I do think that's rapidly improving. So uh, I just put out a blog recently about some Nielsen IQ data, which is like one of the one of the best providers of consumption and consumer ah, data. Um, and regenerative agriculture is the fastest growing claim in CPG, right? So it being tagged on the products is happening at a very fast rate. We can talk about the integrity. As fast as we can, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was about <laughs> to say, we can talk about the integrity of that. But what that, what that does say is that the products are becoming more available and more noted as, you know, claimed as regenerative, right? Um, I think where we're the furthest from a national perspective is, is in livestock products, because it's much easier to manage and to claim that hero ingredient of chicken, pork, beef, et cetera, versus I have a 10 ingredient brand that how do I get all of that regenerative or how do I get 90 plus percent of it to get the certification or whatever that may be. Um, so I do think those supply chains are going to be more challenging, right? Um, the other, the other success that we're seeing is, supply chains and growing operations that can kind of commercialize the entire rotation. So a lot of the Central American, South American, South American agroforestry, cacao, coffee rotation systems where they can sell everything in the rotation is very helpful. Um, so there's all kinds of levers there. I think the products that we have are, are good. And I think that that's growing very fast. If you're a if you're a zealot like me that tracks 150 plus of these brands and has the list on the website, then I think you can get to them at better than a D plus, but the average consumer, it's for sure a, a D to a D plus. That's a great point. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, yeah, the average consumer trying to find this when they first, I, I typically see that people have a health event or a health scare or a family mm -hmm. member has a health event or scare. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they start looking and it's, mm -hmm. Yeah, like I said, it's it's about as easy as deer hunting, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so when you think about this, and I think this is a great point that you make, Anthony, the four things that we have to do right to make it happen. The reason that regenerative is selling today is because the health and wellness grade score is so high that it's creating the pull through against the poor convenience, against the poor price point, mm -hmm. and, and against that that potential taste issue. Mm -hmm. um that's the driver right so 
if we could just do some nominal improvement in those other three areas, yeah, I mean, this can explode, correct? Is that is that what you're seeing? Yeah, and I think even on the health and wellness side with the nutrient density piece, the work of people like the Bionutrient Food Association, the work that Eric Smith is doing at Audacious, the work that Tina Owens is now doing with the Nutrient Density Alliance. I mean, what all those folks are trying to do in different ways is basically produce more accessible, cheaper science that backs up that this food is better for all of us. And then we have to translate that for the farmers or the marketers or the brands or whoever that's telling that story to the consumer in a really concise and compelling narrative. And right now we can make the general claim, right? It's like, hey, our chicken's better. Okay, we know like studies say it has more vitamin, whatever. But when we can like really test that, that, that certain lot of chicken and we can say, hey, the vitamin B12 per ounce versus the Tyson chicken looks like X, like that to me will be a game changer. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, at the, and again, that's, that's going to keep pushing that health and wellness story. Uh, mm -hmm. We find that 80, 85% of the people that buy from us, it's health related. They like the fact that it's ecosystem friendly. They like the fact that it's, you know, uh, welfare for the animal. They like the fact of, you know, uh, traditional farms, supporting community, all those other auxiliary things, but they're buying it for themselves. People do stuff for themselves. We're selfish. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. So uh, right. very, very interesting. There, there's a regional aspect to that too. I think that's overall extremely true, but I do think the more you get to, to the coast, the sustainability is more of a purchasing driver, but it's still a very nominal small percentage, right? But you're exactly right. Well, who just published a recent work that uh, consumers are willing to spend 22% more on a product that has a 10% lower uh, footprint? Did you hear that? That specific stat I haven't seen, but in building, you know, the thesis for the fund that we're about to go out and fundraise against, I've been knee deep in a lot of neck deep, actually, I guess I would say in a lot of stats like that. And what we do know is we know that people will pay a higher price for sustainable, sustainably produced goods. And we know that the category of sustainably produced goods is growing faster than their conventional counterparts. So in terms of driving dollars and growth, especially for the retailers, they want to focus on those brands because that's where their profitability is going to come from now and in the future. And we think that's, you know, I think that is a, is a core tenet to why this is an investable asset class that can make some good, good returns. So talk to us a little bit more about Outlaw Ventures and, and, you know, you're in a raise for that right now. We have investors that listen to the podcast and like to know more yeah. about that. Uh, to me, I'm, I'm a part of a, a couple of ag ventures, uh, uh, and ag startup capital and those kind of things. And it's frustrating to me because I, I want to be a part of the ag tech uh, emergence. Yeah. But a lot of things we see is just incremental improvement on the old system. And yeah. I, I've kind of had enough of that. I, I would love to be a part of something that's focusing on regenerative only. So talk to us about that. Yeah, I completely agree. And that that market sentiment or macro insight is is part of the impetus for doing this, right? It's what have we done well in regen investing? We've done farmland well, and we've done ag tech VC. And we can we can have an argument about how regenerative it is. Is it regenerative enough? Blah, blah, blah. But if I showed you a list of the farmland funds, it's long and the amount of money that's been invested is a lot. If I showed you the list of ag tech VCs, the, the list is long and the amount invested is a lot. What we haven't done is we haven't invested in infrastructure and brands. And 
I'm not saying that the AUM of, of that investment maybe needs to match totally the upstream AUM, but right now it's not even close. Right. It's like a thousand to one, and that's not going to work. We're not going to have regenerative supply chains, supply webs, food systems, whatever, if we don't do that. Um, and and that's the impetus for Outlaw Ventures. And I think, you know, Monty, I'll be very, I'll be very honest with the audience. You know, where we're at is we're still building the initial team, we're still building the strategy, and we're desiring to have the deck, the model, and the strategy fully baked out for beginning to fundraise in Q4. And we're asking ourselves a lot of hard questions, right? Because th there's a tension point around venture capital. And here's, here's what it is. One is, is it truly regenerative? Can you do it in a truly regenerative way, right? On the brand side, consumer multiples are not of that of tech, right? They're typically going to trade at three to five X and they're, they're going to have a lower success rate than a lot of the tech stuff that is going to trade at a seven to 10 plus multiple. And so your, your shots on goal are just smaller and your percentage exits are, are less, right? So can you truly, can you truly produce a market rate return? I think we can, right? But me as a champion of the space, the other problem I want to go solve after we figure out fund one is we can only invest in one to 5%, the absolute best top of the line venture backable brands. And there's 95 to 99% of the investable universe that is, they're great brands. They're doing great work. They're financeable. They're investable in terms of they can produce a return. Can they produce a venture return in the lifetime of the fund of 10, 10 years? Probably not. Um, and the reason we can't be as innovative on the financing side is because LPs or the people with the real money that invest into the funds, um, they don't like complexity. They don't like nuance. They don't like to try things that haven't been proven out. And this hasn't been proven out, right? So I'm already selling them on this new idea of regenerative agriculture. I'm selling them on venture capital, you know, regen CPG as a venture backable asset class. They don't want to hear about a longer time horizon. They don't want to hear about a reduced return. They want a very vanilla structure so they can write checks. Um, with all that said, do I think we can do it and have success with fund one? Yes. Do I think it solves all of the problems in the ecosystem? No. So trying to manage the tension of those two things. Well, I think there's um, saturation in ag tech, mm -hmm. like you were saying, both in mm -hmm. money. And I think that saturation is, uh, yeah, you you hear about the climate corpse, you hear about the blue rivers, you hear about a few of those things, but well, there's a ton that um, uh, there's a lot of money being thrown at it. That is, yeah the the time horizon and the multiples are are not that and i think you know what you've got is uh potentially one of the first funds into this space that you're talking about which gives you kind of a first move, mover advantage in in the fund so mm -hmm. and it may not be as exciting in those kind of things but there's a lot of groups out there that want to invest in regen or it's part of their you know sustainable initiatives or you know it could be food companies that want to participate in it too you yeah know, come to think of it so uh, to be yeah. their goals. All right. So as we're, we're kind of winding up here, yeah. Paint the, paint the picture of, uh, your perfect future. Okay. Oh man. Hey, tell me, tell me because of what you are doing and your mm -hmm. team that you lead and your context connections and all of your resources that you have at mm -hmm. your disposal. Uh, when we sit down again in, in 10 years, if I'm alive, you know, uh, yeah. I'm a bad driver. I hope, I hope um, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what is it going to look like? What What is the success that you have created uh, in this space in 10 years? 
Yeah, I mean, I have a really simple North Star. Uh, it's the question that we ask all of our guests, all the brands that we have on our podcast, which is how do we get regen brands at 50% market share by 2050? Um, some people think that's really realistic. Some people think it's not possible. Some people are somewhere in the middle. Everyone has a very interesting response to that question. Um, but, you know, that's that's my North Star. Uh, and I think it's going to be hard to get there. I think it's going to be complex to get there. I think it's going to be um, a lot of work to get there, a lot of collaboration. Um, but I think we can. And I think, you know, truth is on our side and like what people really want in this world and, and from their food is on our side. Um, we just got to make the rest of the rest of it work. I have one modification I'm going to challenge you to on your North Star. Yeah. Yeah. Don't shoot for 50%. It's got to be 51 Okay. Okay. All right. So I like it. <laughs> regenerative, regenerative food has to be the primary majority. Yeah. The majority yeah. the way food is produced by 2050. So go for 50. Yeah. yeah. Get 10% by 2040, you'll be there. And yeah. if you if you can get 10%, you know, 17 years, 10%, that's attainable. So I, mm -hmm. I think that uh, that will definitely happen. I got it. I got a question. I'm going to flip the question to you, Monty. What do you uh -oh. think we need to do to get 50%, 51%, excuse me, market share by 2050? Well, that's a beautiful part about being the co-host. I ask the questions. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay. The do the food dollar votes. The person yeah, who's yeah. purchasing it determines mm -hmm. what the system is. And uh, they vote with their dollars and they vote in the voting booth. So uh, both of those things need to happen. Uh, we need mm -hmm. to have a wholesale change in, in how we view food. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, we also need to, you know, think about food differently. Um, you know, us Americans, uh, compared to Europeans, you know, I, I loved it. Italy yesterday uh, announced that they they banned all, you know, fake food. They're not going to allow it at all. Yeah. But you yeah. go Italians and, and they understand yeah. food and the beauty in the uh, community around it. So, it's going to take some, it's going to take a lot of education to get the consumer to change how they vote. They change how they vote. Everything else lines up. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, is it, is it supply driven or is it demand driven, right? Is this supply side economics or is this demand side? So I, back, back to you, what do you think? I think you're spot on and I think it's health driven. Uh, if you look at how, uh, what we're paying for healthcare in this country is eclipsing the growth rate of GDP and just the, um, the burden of, of health, if you look at the burden of ecosystem health on, you know, the way that we have all the externalities now, uh, every, I, I want to say, I don't have the exact stat, but I got to say 90 plus percent of the people that I talk to that work in regenerative agriculture across farmer, business person, investor, whatever, consumer, they all have a health story. You know, they have a personal health pr problem or they have a relative that has brought them to this work. And I, I hope we don't have to have large scale suffering to get us there. Uh, I hope we can, I hope we can kind of have that realization as a collective without that, but that might be what it takes. And I think, I think the health angle is the linchpin. I think that's the, the key. Well, at the growth rate of health related events, if you plot out those curves, your 50% uh, or 51% now is a, is a, unfortunately a, not a big enough goal because uh, mm. if health events bring us to this mm. uh, by 2050, we've got some, we've got some serious issues. Um, yeah at the growth rate of current health situations. So very, very interesting. Uh, what else should we have visited about while we were together today, Anthony? That's a good question. Um, 
I don't know, man. This has been a great conversation. I just really appreciate it. It's great to chat with you. The legend himself, you know? Oh, yeah, right. So no, <laughs> this is fun. And I, I really appreciate your perspective because as a farmer, you know, we don't, we kind of are aware of this stuff uh, and we know there's problems and such. And, uh, but I, I love the fact that you are in a, just a full on press on, on these issues of the supply chain and getting it to the consumer. And, and we both need to work together to create 100%. a whole through, right. And, and educating that consumer in, in a cohesive way too, to where we make sure every dollar we're spending, we're making a maximum impact with that, that consumer. So yeah. Fantastic we, work you're doing. We we a lot of times, in, in my opinion, create false binaries and we make everything an either or. And everything in the region space to me is an and right now. We just need to do all of it. It's a lot of ands. It's not a lot of either ors. Um, so I don't want my focus on downstream and market building to be seen as like the upstream is not important. It's incredibly important. It's the whole point, right? But it's not an either or, it's an and. Um, and I think the more people that we can just have step back and have that more macro wide view, like we're going to be in a really good spot. And I think the thing that's we're going to have to really overcome is this need for labeling, uh, because as soon as we create the mm -hmm. national organic standards, we we mm -hmm. we just stop the progress. You know, mm -hmm. you meet the standard, and you're done. Regenerative is mm -hmm. two things: it's a mindset, and it's mm -hmm. it's a uh, continuous improvement process. Mm -hmm. uh, it's regenerative is regenerative in its nature. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to uh, make a book on a moving target. And um, OK, so I, think I, I hear you. Part of I it. hear you. My question back to you, then, is what's the market validation? Right. Like how how do you express it to the consumer at the grocery store if you don't do it with a certification or a label? Well, I think the certification portion of it needs to be a continuous improving process. Right. Got it. Got it. OK. Authentic authentication of it. Yeah. Uh, if anything, Agreed. organic's probably stopped and backslidden you know yeah yeah i think that has to be a continuous improvement plus i think especially when it comes to ecosystem services and and all those things um the benefit is if you take a farmer that's doing you know mm -hmm. an f and move them to a d yeah that's great as yeah, long yeah. as move to the c right <laughs> and, B and an a in a certain amount of time you know in the regenerative yeah. group they're they're approaching it from that way mm -hmm. uh so I think there's uh, a lot of hard work look needs to be taken at this, um, but we can't just create a standard and then, and we hit it. And when we're done, then we're, then we're back having this conversation again in 20 years. So yeah. Anyway, thank you for all the hard work you're doing. Uh, Appreciate and, it, man. Uh, you know, right it's, back at you. It, it's your, your time and effort and your dollars. You're putting your money where, yeah. where your mouth is. And that's what really counts. Appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. And uh, we'll have resources here on the description and everything. Check out their website. It's a, uh, it is definitely, you know, the blog post that he referenced and the podcast and all the other, the newsletter, I get that all the other things that, uh, you know, that you can learn and just really get up to speed on what's going on in the regenerative food business. So thank you, Anthony, for all your hard work. Thanks, Monty. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. It's exciting to learn how we can scale emerging brands that have Regen built into their core. That's a food system that Anthony says he believes people want to support. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers move along that regenerative path, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, X, 
aka Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.